Thanks, Mary. Good morning, everyone. Uh, for our guests, my name is Anton, and uh, you've joined us uh, in the middle of our series on human sexuality. Our regular pattern in church is to work through a book of the Bible each week to hear God's Word. But uh, we are taking these five weeks to see what God has to say about our sexuality. Uh, now, for some of us, this has been a bit of a bit of an awkward series talking about some of these things. Uh, for others, uh, it's been challenging. For some, it's been painful or confusing. Uh, some encouraging, uh, because all of us are sexual beings, but we all have a unique experience of our sexuality. And I think part of why we have strong feelings on this is that there are two different stories out there about human sexuality. Uh, so there's the story that our culture tells, and it goes something like this. Your sexuality is the essence of who you are. Your sexual desires define you. Your sexual feelings are the key to working out your identity, who you are. And therefore, pursuing your sexual desires is the way to lead a flourishing life. Uh, so Ed Sheeran sings... Every time you come around, you know I can't say no. Uh, let me test your uh, cultural knowledge. Lizzo, who's heard of Lizzo? She's big at the moment, trust me. Uh, she sings, in a minute, I'm a need a sentimental man or woman to pump me up. They're both expressing that your sexuality is there for you to be truly you, free from any institution or authority, and from all boundaries so long as it's consensual. It's where you can craft yourself in whatever image you want because your desires is most true about you. It's what's most you about you. And so the story goes, let your desires steer you towards whatever makes you uh, happy and authentic. That's one story of human sexuality. It's quite a new story. It had its roots in the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, but its current form is only a few years old. And it's grounded in the, in the worldview of expressive individualism. Carl Truman puts it, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inner feelings. It's where the true you is where you're living out your desires. But there's another story of sexuality, a much older story. It too promises an identity to lead, uh, an identity and uh, for you and a flourishing life for you. And there's another story that says, you are so much more than yourself. You are made by a loving creator. And he made you to know him and him to know you. And he made you so that he could love you and you could love him and live life to the full. This story will lead you not to act on every sexual desire, but instead pursue what someone else desires, what God desires for you. And that is a massive thing to do. So why would anyone do that? Well, in the second Bible reading, it says of followers of Jesus, you are not your own. You, are, you were bought at a price. If you're someone who has come to Jesus for forgiveness 
a new life and hope, then you are not your own. You don't belong to you. It's a counter story to the first one. You are not your own. Your ultimate good is to follow, is not to follow your own desires. You belong to God. But that means that you are His prized possession. You were made by Him and you were bought by Him. You were redeemed at the cost of His Son Jesus. That's how much He values you. And so if you have relationship with God through Jesus, if you know how much He loves you, if you trust that He wants what's best for you and knows what's best for you, then have a listen to this story on human sexuality so that you may honour God with your bodies. Uh, We heard the origin of this story in uh, our first Bible reading from Genesis. Uh, Why don't you open up that passage again, uh, page 3 in your Bibles, and then on to page 4. This is a story uh, with God as our creator, making us male and female, giving us a task to do, and charging us to follow his instructions. As we heard a couple of weeks ago in our series uh, in Genesis, sex is designed by God for bonding together a man and a woman who have already committed their lives to being bonded together in marriage, giving them pleasure and producing children. And according to this story, rather than being just a tool for establishing our identity, sex is given as a tool for loving service of one another. It's sex used in the marriage, in the service of marriage, leading to the sacrificial rearing of children. The Bible has its own song song lyrics. In Song of Songs, uh, the song goes, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. It's part of a longer song showing the love between a husband and and his wife and their desire for one another. And that's in the Bible as an analogy to help us to glimpse God's love and his desire for us. We belong to him and his desire is for you. But then let's head back to Genesis over onto page 3. Have a look at the last line of chapter 2. Striking, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think for many of us, there is shame associated with our sexuality. Maybe we're ashamed because of something that was done to us, some form of sexual abuse or some sexual encounter gone wrong, some unwanted exposure to pornography. But for most of us, I think we're ashamed because of how we have used our sexuality. Between us all, uh, we, we have used other people's bodies just for our own sexual pleasure. Our sexual behavior might have left scars on previous partners. Uh, in marriage, maybe some of us have sex or withhold it as part of some selfish power play. Or we've seen things in pornography that we really shouldn't have taken pleasure in. And as the story goes on, Genesis 3 explains how we got here. It says, The man and the woman determined for themselves what is best, rather than follow the word of the Lord who made them. 
You see in verse 6, the fruit they ate, look how it was described. It was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. See, they're following their own desires in general, rather than following their creator's wisdom. And what was the first result? What was the first piece of wisdom they acquired? Well, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Shame enters the world as God's rule is rejected. They hide from the God who loves them. They blame one another. And so the experiment of self-rule has disastrous consequences and it's affected our sexuality as well. And so in this story, we are made by God to have a wonderful relation with him and with others, to have a vulnerable, no-shame relationship with one another. And our sexuality was given so that we could serve God together. And yet, in this story, when we reject God's love for us, when we stop trusting his word, sin and shame and blame affect our sexuality. We're all in this story, aren't we? So these are two different stories, very different stories from two different places. The first thing, uh, the first story says the truest thing about you is you. And the second says the truest thing about you is you are not your own. And that's why God's story of sexuality can seem so weird, confusing, or harsh. It's got a completely different starting point. So let's turn now to our, uh, oh, we're going to turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because it's a letter written to a bunch of Christians. I'll put it up on the screen if you don't have it in the Bible. Uh, earlier in the letter, we're seeing, okay, what's God saying now to his people? Well, early in 1 Thessalonians, it says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So there we are again. The framework for all that is said in this letter is that these Christians are loved by God, chosen by him. And so all that the Bible says about our sexuality is, is, uh, is two people loved by God and uh, chosen by him. And so because they are his, they are to follow his will for their lives. What's God's will for them? What does God want from them? What's he want from us? Well, to the Thessalonians, he writes, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Everyone, oh, what's God's will for me? It's to be sanctified. It's the Bible's word for, for holy. It means being holy. God wants you to live a holy life. So God's, it's God's will you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. I don't know what was going on in the Thessalonian church. But this was particularly how they needed to be holy. It was in the realm of sex. Thessalonica might have been a similar city to Sydney. Uh, They were to avoid, keep their distance from sexual immorality. We'll look at what that is in just a second, but let's keep going. Uh, Verse uh, 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. 
not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Can you see the two stories there? One of controlling your body, having self-control, and the other is passionate lust. One makes for a better movie. But the difference is the latter do not know God. Knowing God makes all the difference. But why all this self-control? Why all this restraint? Why avoid sexual immorality? Well, it goes on to say, and in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. We are told, as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So, there's a list of, a bunch of reasons to avoid sexual immorality. Let's go from the bottom. Uh, it's, uh, it's a rejection of love. Uh, uh, sorry, it's an instruction from God himself. Uh, it's not what God, ha- God has called us to do as his people. Uh, the Lord's punishment will come. And it's a rejection of love of brother and sister in Christ. What's being said is, a, is that all sexual immorality leads to wronging or taking advantage of someone else. The first story may say, live out your sexual desires, but it doesn't have the effect on others in view. This call to avoid sexual immorality is a call to love others, to not take advantage of them. But what does the Bible mean by sexual immorality? There's a number of places uh, that we could turn to, such as Leviticus 18, Romans 1, Colossians 3. Uh, but let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6. That was our second Bible reading. Uh, just before our Bible reading, it says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. On its own, it's a very stark statement, isn't it? Uh, We have a sample list of things that are outside God's will for our holiness. Uh, You may well have perceived that it's not only sexual sins on the list. If you slander someone, speak badly of someone else, or if you're greedy with the money God's given you, you're not worthy of God's kingdom. If you get drunk, same thing. Uh, Immoral sex is not the worst or the unforgivable sin. But for all these things, they do not belong with the kingdom of God. And so let's focus in, in on the things that relate to our sexuality. The first is uh, the term sexually, the sexually immoral. Uh, the root Greek term for this is porneia. That's where we get the word pornography from. And the Bible uses porneia as a catch-all term for any sexual activity involving another person that's outside God's will. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, that's any sexual activity outside of a faithful lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. 
So we could take uh, lust and pornography. Uh, when, when someone's using pornography, you're using the body and the sexual activity of someone else for your own stimulation. You're taking advantage of them. And that's to the great detriment of your brain and your body, let alone the thousands of actors who are trafficked and permanently damaged through the porn industry. Uh, Come along to the seminar in two weeks' time to think this through more. But also on the list is adultery, sex between a married person and someone not their spouse. Uh, Statistically, 70% of Australian marriages experience an affair. That's in wider Australia. There'll be some impact with our church family as well. And what great pain and hurt comes from within marriages like this. Marriage is meant to be that place of trust and openness and faithfulness. It's meant to be a picture of God's faithfulness to us. And yet most are wrecked through adultery. Also on the list is homosexual sex. Uh, It's clear from this text and a bunch of others that homosexual sex is not part of God's plan for human sexuality. Um, uh, Sex between men uh, and men is mentioned here. Uh, Sex between women is similarly mentioned in Romans 1. God is saying same-sex relations, along with the other things on the list, they're not God's will for you as his chosen people. And so where does that leave the Christian who is attracted to the same sex? And what does that mean for our church as a whole? So firstly, for those attracted to the same sex, uh, it's saying, what God is saying here is, it's God's will for you to be holy. I have chosen you, I have shown my love on you, and it's my will for you to be holy. And so what does that look like? Well, remember, it's God's will for you to be sanctified, to be holy. Note that it's not God's will for you to be heterosexual. It doesn't say that God's will for you is to be free from all sexual temptation. So I've had the privilege of discipling a bunch of people who uh, would call themselves gay because they're same-sex attracted, but are seeking to follow Jesus. They are wonderful parts of the churches, including this one that I've been in. They seek to follow Jesus, find their identity in him. And they strive to live lives that are holy, which is God's will for them. Avoiding sexual immorality, fleeing from lust or sexual activity outside of a husband-wife marriage. But depending on how much you adopt the first story, you might be asking, how can they do that? How can they deny expressing something that's an integral part of who they are? Well, for those who experience same-sex attraction, it does mean not pursuing a sexual relationship with someone of the same sex. Now, some may still go on to marry someone of the opposite sex. can work out. But most will live a single celibate life. So this is how to be a gay Christian to live with, uh, to 
live a single celibate life. How can someone be willing to do that? Well, again, part of what we, part of the answer we heard last week. We as a church need to be a family to them. And so one dear friend who's same-sex attracted said to me, when it's easy, I want my family to celebrate the ups and the joys. And when it's hard, I want my family to sit with me, grieve with me and cry with me. Another experience, uh, Rachel Gilson, author of Born Again This Way, shares her experience. Uh, she writes, I had on the one hand knowledge that God's word said no to same-sex lust and sexual relations. But on the other hand, my attraction to women wasn't going anywhere. So I was sitting in the puddle of, why do you say that, God? If you could just tell me why, then I would obey with perfect joy and obedience. She says tongue-in-cheek. And one of those things God pressed me on at that time was, what if the most important question isn't why am I asking this of you, but what if the more important question is, can I trust the one who's asking it? For her, it came down to, is God trustworthy with her sexuality? She saw Jesus, God himself, And Jesus lived a life avoiding sexual immorality. He faced temptations like the rest of us. And she saw how much Jesus loved her. Jesus died for her. Your desires don't die out of love for you, but Jesus did. And so she could entrust her life and her sexuality to him. But a word to us as a whole church, as we seek to love and care for those who are attracted to the same sex. Well, firstly, any time we as a church, or us as individuals, any time we've acted to make someone feel like they're the worst of all sinners, or then you're not really welcome here, or any time we've been unkind because of someone's sexuality, or made jokes about their sexuality, or even just gossip about speculation about whether someone's gay or not. We need to repent of that. This is not displaying the love and acceptance that Jesus displayed in his life. Instead, we as a church and you as a person who welcomes someone, are we the, are we the church? Are we the person? who welcomes someone regardless of their sexual orientation. We can welcome them even if we uh, disagree with what they're doing. Will you be the friend that knows them and loves them no matter what their struggles are? Are you willing to even be open yourself so that you may be challenged and encouraged by them? There will be times where we need to call people to repentance But that must never be done to condemn, but to redeem. Because of all, because all of us have a sexuality that is distorted by the fall. We all need Jesus. Jesus who lived out his sexual, sexuality perfectly. Jesus through whom God made you and knows what's best for you. And Jesus who is the one who is, he is the one worthy to condemn us but it is he who died to redeem us. 
And so what of those Corinthians? Uh, what of them who uh, had displayed these things? Look at that second paragraph. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were unworthy of the kingdom, but you were sanctified. You were not fit to meet with God, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so look what God has done for you. Whatever guilt you are feeling about your sexual past, it is washed clean in the Lord Jesus Whatever shame you feel about your sexuality, Jesus has made you holy. Before God, Jesus gives us his sexual history. Just like all sin, his life is swapped for ours. So our sexual history is Jesus' sexual history now in the eyes of God. And so we belong to the Lord and may we know the intimacy and relationship with him. May we continue to be transformed to relate to others, not with sexual immorality, but with purity and love and faithfulness and seeking the good of others. Uh, there's a lot here that uh, I've covered. There's plenty more that can be said. Uh, feel free, uh, Tom will show you how you can ask a question uh, for later through the week. Uh, but let me leave you with this quote from Jackie Perry, who wrote, uh, Gay Girl, Good God. She writes, or she says, I don't believe it is wise or truthful to the power of the gospel to identify oneself by the sins of one's past or the temptations of one's present, but rather only to be defined by Christ, who has overcome both those who he calls his own. All men and women, including myself, that are well acquainted with sexual temptation, are ultimately not what our temptation says of us. We are what Christ has done for us. Therefore, our ultimate identity is very simple. We are Christians. And so that's the story of our sexuality. Will you trust the one who wrote it and entrust your sexuality to him? Amen.